We're looking at Matthew chapter 26, even as we come into this final section of Matthew, the so-called section on the passion of Jesus, the passion of the Christ. As you turn to Matthew 26, and as you are mindful of those who are around you, helping them to find their way to Matthew 26, I want to encourage you, indeed, to open a physical Bible in your hand, because it is helpful not only to hear God's Word, but to feel its weight. As you turn there, let me to remind you that Matthew's message is that in Jesus of Nazareth, the long-promised Messiah, the Davidic king who would establish forever the reign of God's righteousness upon the earth as it is in heaven, has indeed come. The result of his arrival would therefore unleash an entirely new era, the era of comprehensive human and cosmic flourishing, a vision known throughout Scripture as Shalom. Matthew has structured his telling of the story by beginning with the arrival of this much-anticipated but little-expected king and his kingdom. He has introduced us to Jesus through the account of his birth, baptism, and then his temptation in the wilderness, And then through five discourses interspersed with demonstrations of God's shalom-making power, Matthew introduces us to the life that Jesus came to secure for us, grant to us, and so the life he expects of us. Last week, our series through Matthew brought us into this final climactic section in which we watch the passion of Christ's love in his most glorious and most powerful, if unexpected, display. That is, his betrayal, his arrest, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Last week, we saw the beginnings of the conspiracy emerging now into full view, a conspiracy designed to marginalize, silence, and ultimately destroy Jesus. And we were reminded that while we find ourselves both victims and participants in that conspiracy, we are also beneficiaries of Jesus' own greater conspiracy to turn this smaller conspiracy in which we participate on its head for our good and for his glory. And so this week, we begin to look at the first salvo as it develops in this emerging conflict between these two conspiracies and the parties to the respective sides in that conflict we find ourselves not quite expecting. So read with me Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 6 and reading through 13. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment and poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, 
saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Brothers and sisters, this is indeed the good news of our Father to us in Jesus Christ. So let us ask that by His Spirit He would grant us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. So Father, we pray. Truly, at this time and this place, as we sit here with this, Your Word open in our laps, that by Your Spirit You would grant us Uncommon eyes, uncommon ears, uncommon hearts. Father, to see you acting, to hear you speaking, that we may behold your glory and marvel at it. Protect us from error. Feast us upon this, your word. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. Mid to late 19th century, as electricity was becoming more widely available, it created something of an identity crisis in various industries. One of those industries was refrigeration. Prior to the widespread availability of electricity, there were companies that specialized in producing and delivering big blocks of ice. These were delivered to households and put in what was known as ice boxes to help keep food longer, to keep food cold. Even today, some of us, some of us may have relatives that refer to the refrigerator as the ice box. It's in the ice box. As is often the case, technological advances often spur on invention and development of new products, and of course, electricity was no different. Along with other technological advances, people developed a machine that ran on this newfangled thing discovered and harnessed called electricity and was able to keep food cool, even in some cases frozen, without the need of an ice block. Of course, these were expensive, but you can imagine the benefit. While there may be a huge cost up front, there would be a savings over time. Never mind questions of convenience. Well, this created an opportunity or a challenge, depending on how you understood your company. You see, it was an opportunity or a challenge depending on how you understood your company's product and your company's purpose. 
Some companies understood that they were in the refrigeration business. And so they saw this as an opportunity to diversify and expand their business. Others, on the other hand, understood themselves to be in the ice block business. They saw this refrigeration as nothing but a newfangled fad that wouldn't catch on because it was too expensive. Those who understood themselves to be in the refrigeration business were able to see their circumstances as an opportunity, and so they adapted and they grew. But those who understood themselves as being in the ice block business faced an increasing challenge and eventually, as we know, went out of business. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because several weeks prior, both companies looked like they were doing exactly the same thing. They looked like they were in exactly the same business. But one company understood it differently than another company, and that was the difference between life and death. You see the point. Sometimes we can be passionately busy about our work, but fail to understand the nature of our work. We can be passionately busy with a life filled with many good things, but fail to understand what that life is to be about. And when that happens... We find ourselves busier and busier and busier, running harder and harder, often with good things and feeling increasingly exhausted and empty and hopeless that we may actually gain some progress. And eventually we give up the effort. We long to be a people of patience, for example. But we can't stand the maddening people we've been thrust together with to work on a project. (sighs) We want to learn compassion for our neighbor, but are profoundly irritated by our neighbor's incessant interruptions. We want to get to church to worship Jesus and love His people, and we get frustrated with all the cyclists zooming by. Next week, start out early. It's so frustrating, isn't it? How can I grow to be like Jesus when I'm surrounded by morons? That is not where you say amen. Let's pray. Lord, grant us courage to hear your word. We recognize the feeling. It happens because we've become so focused on what we presume to be the good mission of Christ that we have lost sight of Christ himself. Sometimes, like those ice block companies that failed to understand their product, their mission, and so ultimately themselves, 
We can be passionate about good things while failing to understand the main thing. In our passion to serve Jesus, or worse, in our passion to get from Jesus the benefits that he promises, we often lose sight of Jesus. Being blinded by our overfamiliarity with Jesus, and so we fail to recognize him and recognize his mission and recognizing and recognize his ways, and so we fail rightly to serve him and to honor him and to worship him. And in the end, to actually benefit from him. This is the disconnect that we find playing out before us in our passage. Why this waste, the indignant disciples cry out. Why this waste? That is indeed the question. Because that's the question that gets at the point. Why this waste? Why indeed? The disciples were right and good in their concern for the poor. After all, Jesus had just said that on that final judgment day, that's the question he's going to be asking. In fact, they were right and good in their concern for the poor because, in fact, throughout Scripture, it is revealed as the beating heart of God's righteousness. But their right and good concern for the poor has eclipsed their ability to actually see the heart of God's righteousness before them in the flesh. Look at the scene with me. It's fascinating. The scene opens innocuously enough. Verse 6, Jesus was in Bethany, which was one of his common stops. And Matthew makes the point of saying, in the house of Simon, the leper. Now, that's like saying Jesus was pleased to visit Pastor Dan, the idiot. I mean, everybody knows it, but do you have to flaunt it? Do you have to make it public? Do you have to record it for generations to know Simon, the leper? Why do you have to parade his shame in front of everybody? Well, because that's the point. We had just left the halls of power in which the chief priests and the elders had gathered to conspire against Jesus. And now we find ourselves next scene in the home of shame. For various reasons, most commentators assume that Simon had once been a leper a leper who had been healed. Perhaps he had been healed by Jesus himself. But whatever the case, whether he is currently or a past leper, the fact is that he had become so inseparable from his shame that that's how he was known. That was his reputation. That was the scarlet A that he wore. Simon the leper. That Jesus delights to enter this house, to bring his friends into this house, to sit at this table and to eat the food in this house is already a hint at the glory of God. 
For it is in such places, in such houses, with such people eating such food, that we will find the real glory of Christ's counter-conspiratorial love. And so remember that setting as this all unfolds. And then we have the actors. Of course, we have Jesus. Presumably, we have Simon, the host. And of course, we have the disciples who will very quickly show themselves to be indignant. Presumably, there are others there, but they are unnamed. And then there is this woman. Peter says, verse 7, a wo- excuse me, Matthew says, verse 7, a woman came up to him. John identifies as Mary, identifies her as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who was all who were also from Bethany. That may or may not be the case. It may or may not be the same episode. It certainly appears to be. And so there you have it. The setting. There is we're in the house of Simon the leper, and here are the actors, primarily Jesus, this woman, and this and the disciples. But notice now, as the action begins to unfold, what happens? A woman came up to him. A woman approaches Jesus. You you have to understand that this is a stunningly bold move. It's audacious for her to approach a rabbi in this way. Some commentators note, and as the story is told elsewhere, it appears to be very provocative, salacious even. The approach to Jesus seems even to to be a threat to Jesus' own reputation. Women just don't do these kinds of things, but it gets worse she approaches him with an alabaster flask. Now, the others don't mention this. Matthew is the only one who mentions that as an alabaster flask because Matthew wants you to see what the disciples are seeing. She holds in her hand a very precious item, a very expensive item, something that would have been known to be precious indeed, because it's a flask, not with a screw-top lid. It's a sealed flask. And the only way to access that which is kept in the flask is to break the neck so that the flask is rendered unusable. It is a very expensive one-use flask. And it is very precious. But not only so, It's an alabaster flask filled with very expensive ointment, Matthew tells us. Mark tells us that it was pure nard, which was an exotic oil or ointment that at the time was imported from India. Mark tells us further that it was valued at about 300 denarii. And so let's do a little bit of calculation. A denarius was about a day's wage for a day laborer. And so quick calculation, if a day laborer averages, according to Google, 14.22 an hour, and if they average about a 10-hour day for the sake of multiplication, because I'm really weak in math, that is what? $1.42 a day. 
That's not. $142 a day or about, for 300 days, $42,600. Almost a year. So in this very expensive alabaster flask, she has this ointment which is worth about $42,000, $43,000. There's no doubt that this was a very prized possession in her household, a very prized possession in her family, not just because it was likely a family heirloom. But this was the family retirement. This was the family inheritance. This was the family nest egg. This was her life savings. This was her 401k. And here she comes to pour it all out. Quite literally, she is pouring out her life, her security, her future, her hope. It is all poured out from a now unusable alabaster flask. She has pushed to the middle of the table everything of value in her house, as it were. Car title, house title, 401k, her, future, her household's future, her children's future. Gives it all to the middle, to Jesus. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. You know, as I think about it, I, I think, you know, $42,000, that's a lot of money. Jesus doesn't really need that much money. I mean, you'd, you'd hope that she'd just be a little bit more reasonable. You would hope and pray that she would be just a little bit more responsible. That she just think about her children. Doesn't she love her children? <clears throat> that she would just think about her future and the health and the stability and the security of her house. It's fine we want to say to her to be generous, but let's not go overboard. As we Presbyterians are fond of saying, in all things, moderation. It's fine to love Jesus and all, but let's not get out of hand here. <laughs> Balance your love for Jesus with all the other responsibilities you have in life. And so we get the indignation of the disciples. Verse 8, when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? That's exactly how I would have responded. You have got to be kidding me. I could have given 20000 to Jesus and bought the car I need.
And the disciples give a more noble reason for their indignation than I give for my indignation. Mine is much more self-centered than theirs. They say, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. And as we've just calculated, about $42,000 and given to the poor. Anybody know anyone in the valley who would benefit from $42,000? Anyone know anyone in the valley who would benefit? Any 42 people in the valley who would benefit from $1,000? I do. And their expressed concern for the poor is is a good thing. In fact, like Christmas in our culture, Passover was a time of special generosity toward the poor. It was a sort of act, a sort of sacramental act of celebration for the mighty works that God had accomplished in their rescue from Egypt that were being celebrated at Passover. In fact, Jesus himself had just emphasized the profound importance of caring for the poor. So central is it to the heart of the triune God. And so with their eyes focused on the very good and biblical priority of the poor, they are shocked at the waste. It's a waste of limited resources. Could have been used for greater good. You should be more prudent. You should be a better steward of your limited resources. You should be more responsible. You should save it all up so that you have enough later to give out. You should not just be throwing away your time and your money and your energy willy-nilly like that. After all, if you do that too often and for the wrong people, you may be taken advantage of. And then where will you be? We'll all be dragged down. We get it. I get it. Our concerns are good too. Family time, family health, family safety, future financial security of our family, of our career, our car, our house. I mean, I get all these things and they're good. And so, like the disciples, when we see such prodigal irresponsibility, we become indignant. Whenever some demand seems to marginalize or minimize or put at risk any of these things that we deem to be of good biblical importance, we think it may, best, it may be best to simply bury all of these things and protect them so that they don't go to waste where rust and moth won't destroy them. Which is why Jesus' affirmation of the woman is so stunning. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. What? Verse 13, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that is not because Jesus is rewarding her for her faith. It's because Her faith is demonstrating the very gospel that we proclaim. The reason that the woman will be remembered is because she is embodying the life of the gospel. A hint of that is found in Jesus' response. You always have the poor with you. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
The focus in Deuteronomy, you might remember, is the life of righteousness for which God has redeemed his people and for which now they, he is giving them the promised land. It is the life of God's shalom that they will now live before the nations as they settle in the promised land. And chapter 15 of Deuteronomy in particular is talking about a particular aspect of that life, and it is the regular observance of the sabbatical year. Every seven years, they were to take a whole year and they were to give the people rest and they were to give the land rest. Think of it as a year of Sundays, a year of Sabbath days. It was a year-long taste and opportunity to practice God's shalom upon the earth as it is in heaven. Wouldn't that be awesome? How amazing would that be? Every seven years, debt's forgiven. Every seven years, the land got to rest. Every seven years, slaves got rest. The opportunity to cease from our labors and our enslavements in order to celebrate and rest in and feast upon the provision of the Lord himself, the living God, the loving God, the powerful God for an entire year. A particular focus and practice of this Sabbath celebration every week and this sabbatical celebration every year this particular focus of, was, to, was to participate together in the bounty of God's love as displayed in the sabbatical, especially toward the poor in our midst. It's not because the poor are particularly virtuous. It's not because you and I are particularly virtuous. But it is because the poor in our midst reveal us they expose us because they embody for us our own vulnerability. They embody for us our own lack of resources. They embody for us the least and the lost and the lonely. They embody for us those who stand to benefit the most from God's gift of shalom-making sabbatical. Think about that. If you had a debt that you could not hope to pay off, how amazing would it be for that sabbatical year to roll around and you get the, the letter from your creditor that says, sabbatical year, the remainder of your debt is free. Which is why in Deuteronomy 15, they say, when your brother comes to you and asks for a loan, do not calculate how close the sabbatical year is. Guard your heart and give freely and open-handedly because all of your resources come to you from the bounty of your Father. In other words, the focus of Deuteronomy 15 is not upon the poor. It is upon the bounty of the triune God's gracious love. Most fully enjoyed by those who know themselves to be poor and who, like Simon, know themselves are known to be poor. 
The sabbatical year was a time to celebrate the righteous reign of God upon the earth as it was in heaven, as it is in heaven. They were to celebrate the sabbatical year every seven years. And then every seven sets of sabbatical years, they would celebrate a super sabbatical. Awesome! Not only were all the debts forgiven, not only were the prisoners let free, but if you had had to mortgage your property in order to make ends meet, then in this great super sabbatical known as the year of Jubilee, you would get your property back. You would get to go home. It's the great reset button. You see, the conspiracy among the raging of the nations that we saw in the opening of chapter 26 is all about protecting what is ours, protecting what we've gathered, protecting what we've, what we've gotten from others. The power, the wealth, the influence, the security, the comforts we have all worked for. And we know the burden of being on the other side of such an equation. Every one of us in this room has felt the vulnerabilities of not having the power or the position or the influence necessary. Although, every one of us in this room does benefit far more from privileges that are ours that we do not know. You see, the disciples here have repeatedly demonstrated that they believed Jesus was just, just the, the one that they would follow in order to get ahead in that game. Jesus was their best bet for getting power, for getting wealth, for getting influence, for getting position. Because Jesus was going to be the new king. Even in our call to worship, in our meditation before we hear it. Even after the resurrection, the disciples are thinking, now the kingdom will come. Now we'll get the power. Now we'll get the wealth. Now we'll get the position. They constantly miss it because they think Jesus is something other than he is. But the woman recognizes that Jesus is the end of that song. And he is the beginning of another song altogether. It is the song of that long promised and now granted jubilee of God's faith, faithfulness. She understands that in Jesus, a new song has begun. The floodgates of God's love have been thrown open and a new era of God's promised shalom has begun in Jesus. You see, the woman sees Jesus as the king, as the promised Messiah, who himself is God's sabbatical year, who is himself God's jubilee year, releasing the poor, you and me, from our debt and granting to us a whole new life, a whole new song. The fulfilled jubilee. In her recognition of this, she understands that all of her, all of her security, all of her comfort, all of her convenience, all of her time, all of her money is wrapped up in Jesus. 
And so she pours it out freely, prodigally, irresponsibly, generously, and joyfully. Because she knows that Jesus is the Jubilee. The kingdom has come. God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And how do we know? Because Jesus is here. You see, to pour out our life to this king, to anoint him as king of our lives, is to give our lives over to his passions, to pour them out, to break the neck so that it can't be used for anything else. His life grants release from all of those debts and all of those slaveries that we're so afraid of losing so that we may be His grant of His grace and of His generosity to those who are around us. In other words, when we pour out our lives to the honor of Jesus, we unavoidably recognize and honor the imprint of His glory on everyone around us the least, the lost, the lonely, the neighbor, the stranger, the enemy, our brother and our sister. You see, our obedience, our care for our children, our love for the poor done rightly is an offering of love that overflows from our prodigal and extravagant love for Jesus because we know that he is our jubilee. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. If our obedience, if our care for our family, even our love for the poor, for whatever good thing it is that is consuming your time, somehow distracts you from, under, from knowing and seeing and loving and living out the Christ, then it has become an idol that is blinding you to life and is binding you in death. This woman knows what even the disciples were having a hard time seeing. It's hard to see Jesus. It's hard to rest in Jesus. Because we've been told for so long that we have to fight and scrape and protect what little we have gathered. This woman lives the life of worship. She lives the gospel, the good news, that in Jesus, the promised jubilee has come. Let us bear that name and let us live that life. So Father, 